the brief prayer. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On April the 14th this year, um, George Verwer died. Some of you will know George um, or know of him. He was one of the global church's most dynamic leaders. He founded Operation Mobilization, which is now active in about 85 countries around the world, including quite deliberately some of those most hostile to the message of Jesus. You may remember we were privileged to have George share with us on the Lent course um, two or three years ago. He came and did a session for us. And uh, he's a, he, he is an, he, well, he was an absolute spiritual dynamo. He is what I think of as a gospelpreneur. And he was, he just had this infectious kingdom can do mindset. So if I'm feeling down in the spiritual dumps, I look up George Verwer online and I watch one of his sermons and uh, I feel very much better afterwards. He was born in 1938 and uh, he grew up in New Jersey, um, the son of Dutch immigrants. And um, it was a housewife. There she is. Her name was Dorothea Clapp. She lived opposite George's high school um, in America. And uh, she had made it her business opposite the school to pray for the pupils in the school. And so she had spotted George and she started praying for him and she decided that she would send him, she mailed him a copy of John's Gospel, which he read, but it didn't make very much difference to him. But then about a year later, a local businessman um, was excited to hear that the young evangelist, Billy Graham, was, well, he was then a young evangelist, this was 1955, was speaking at Madison Square Gardens in, in New York. And uh, so this enterprising businessman, he hired a bus um, and invited lots of people he knew, including George, to hear Billy Graham. And you can guess what, there they are, Madison Square Gardens. You can guess what happened. George was converted in March 1955. Now, George Verwer was exceptionally outgoing and he had a knack for business. He had sold um, fire extinguishers um, when he was a young man. He made, made quite a good go of it as well. Anyway, God seemed to seize that kind of ability in him for his own use. And he entrusted, God entrusted George with extraordinary responsibility right from the beginning. So he left school that summer and uh, he wrote to the principal when he'd left school and said, please can I come back at Christmas and lead a mission in the school? He hadn't really led a mission before. And amazingly, the principal said, okay. So he came back to the school and uh, preached, and uh, over 100 people, pupils in the school, were converted. And his father was converted, who had come along just to see what was happening. Well, it was only a year later, George was 18. He heard, somehow, that only seven out, that seven out of ten Mexicans had no access to a Bible. So he and a couple of friends, they sold their possessions, they bought an old van and a whole pile of Spanish uh, copies of the gospel in Spanish and gospel booklets and they drove to Mexico and um, all the way down there to distribute them. And that was, that was sort of how it started. And that was just typical of this extraordinary man. Now, George Burwood's story is a great introduction to our exploration this morning of the parable of the talents. So this is our Advent sermon series. Advent is about looking ahead towards the second coming of Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus is doing in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 24 to 25. 
And now it's remarkable, Matthew 24 to 25, it's within hours of Jesus' death. And yet he's thinking far ahead to his glorious second coming when he comes as the judge and the saviour of the entire, well, not just the world, but the whole cosmos. The question is, though, how are the followers of Jesus supposed to live in the light of that second coming? Well, that's what the three parables in Matthew 25 teach us. Jesus gives us these three parables, these word pictures that allow us to observe how the future coming is to shape our present priorities. Now, it's very useful to know in advance what you're going to be assessed on. There's an exam paper. Wouldn't it be nice there on the picture? Wouldn't it be nice to know exactly what was coming up on the exam before you took the paper? Make it so much easier. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. As he forecasts the day of judgment over which he will preside and says these will be the issues. Now you can be ready. Being ready. That was the theme a couple of weeks ago when Andrew took the first parable in Matthew 25, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Remember, all those ten young women were waiting for the bridegroom's arrival um, at the wedding celebration. But half of them had failed to look ahead and be prepared. And so when the moment came of the return, everything was lost. Well, the disciples might have listened to that parable and thought, oh, well, okay, right, we, I see, but um, we need to make sure we're ready. But how, Jesus? How? Well, this morning's parable answers the question, the parable of the talents. It teaches us how to be ready. It says to us, you need to seize, I need to seize the opportunities God gives us to make his kingdom grow. You, God is saying to us, Jesus is saying to us here, I need and want you to be gospelpreneurs. I want you to have that kingdom can-do mindset with whatever resources God may give to you. But before we get into the parable itself, I just want to say something about parables and Jesus' parables, particularly in how we read them, because it's possible to get into a bit of a tangle. So Jesus' parables, there are loads of them, and they're stories about ordinary life events, but which, which relate to truth about God's kingdom. Now the question is, when you read a parable, which parts of the story relate to which truths about God's kingdom? Do all the details in the parable make a point? Or only some of the details in the parable? And how do we know? Well, think of the parable of the talents, for example. What, what kingdom of God truth do the talents stand for? Or oh, another question, do the numbers, five talents, two talents, one talent, do the numbers refer to anything in particular? Now, for most of church history, Bible readers have basically gone for what you could call the maximum meaning approach. They say all the details must mean something. Another, like a parable, it's like a detailed allegory of uh, spiritual truth. Now, there are a couple of problems with trying to find a precise meaning in every single detail. One is that we can end up missing the big picture. The other problem is that we end up making guesses about what the things in the parable stand for. And then we read those guesses back into the story. So a classic example of that is the talents that we're looking at today. What do the talents represent? Well, 
I don't need to tell you that in English, the word talent refers to a, a, um, a, 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 an ability, a gift that you have, that we have, a gift or an, an aptitude or an ability. So I can play the recorder out of uh, both nostrils at the same time. For example, that's my talent. You say, that's an ability you've got. And so the story is often interpreted um, as if it was all about um, the diff using our different God-given gifts, aptitudes, and abilities. Well, do use your abilities, but that's not what the parable, the, that's not what the talents are about in the story. Just look carefully at verse 15. It's there, it's staringly obvious, verse 15. It says to us that the talents were given to the servants according to ability. Do you see? If they're given according to ability, then they can't then themselves be our abilities. So what are they? Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. So I think it, we're not supposed to look for meaning in every single detail of the story. For example, in this, I don't suppose that the precise number of talents is something we're supposed to, uh, to, uh, to get in a detailed way or the precise 100% return that the first two servants get. But that doesn't mean we should go as far as the pendulum has in fact swung. So often a pendulum, isn't it, with these things. The pendulum has swung way in the other way. So since the late 19th century, Bible readers have basically reacted against reading into every detail. And instead, they've insisted the parable, each one really just makes one main point. We could call that the anti-allegory approach. One main point per parable. Don't worry about the details, just one main point. But there's a problem with that as well. See, when Jesus explained the parables, he did. Do you remember he explained the parables of the sower, for example? And when he did, lots of the little bits have details. So the, um, the, in the parable of the sower, the seed stands for something, the bird stands for something, the thorns and the thistles, and, the, and everything, they all stand for something in particular. And it's certain that our parable this morning, the parable of the talents, it does refer to specific events. It has to. The context absolutely demands it. So the master going away and returning, well, it has to represent Jesus going away from his disciples and coming back. It can't not. Surely it does. And then the three servants who are entrusted with whatever it is, well, they can only stand for all who would be Jesus' followers. And the talents, too, well, surely they refer to something, something that Jesus entrusts to us in accordance with our abilities. So, for myself, I, I think the best way to take a parable, I take this um, from, if you're interested in all of this, Craig Blomberg, the American New Testament scholar in his book, Interpreting Parables, he clarifies it for me. He says, yes, they are allegories. The, thing, the points in the story do mean things, just not all the points. The main points, the main characters, the main events, focus on those, and that will lead you to the meaning. So with all that in mind, let's enter the parable itself now and, and try to, at last, identify what the talents stand for and how we're to use them in the light of Jesus' return. Well, the story unfolds in three scenes. First of all, the servants entrusted, then the servants in action, and then the servants evaluated. 
Those are going to be our three scenes as we move through the story. So scene one, the servants entrusted. Okay, we've got a very wealthy master about to travel who entrusts a large, verging on massive sum of money to his servants. Do you know how much a talent was, roughly, in relation to a day's wages back in those days? It's been worked out that a talent is worth about 20 years of a laborer's wages. So five talents is an enormous sum of money, millions of pounds. And the amount entrusted to each depends on the master's assessment of their ability to handle that money. Well, then the master leaves. But what does all this stand for? Well, Jesus' followers have been entrusted with Jesus' possessions, represented by those talents. And we've seen that these possessions are not our abilities in themselves, no. Perhaps it's better to see them as the vast resources of Jesus' kingdom that he has piled into our laps. The gospel message itself, expressed now in the New Testament, he's given us that. The power of the Holy Spirit to carry that message. The insight to know, to teach, to proclaim, share that message. The responsibilities, the opportunities in which he places us. All these things he gives to us, the vast resources of his kingdom. And Jesus gives those resources to his people according to their ability to use them. So, for someone like George Verwer, he was entrusted with a breathtakingly clear understanding of the gospel. Incredibly clear. He was given massive opportunity to share it. Because God knew that's what he could manage. That was what that was, what was right for him. What about Dorothea Clapp? That housewife um, who prayed. Well, she might have not have been entrusted with George Verwer's platform. She was given a school. Well, she wasn't. She, she took on the school. It's just there opposite her. She says, there it is. There's my ministry. I'm going to pray. And uh, the initiative to send the gospel. These opportunities she had. God knew what he was doing when he entrusted her in that way. Moved her into that house. God also knew what he was doing when he entrusted that businessman. You know the one who hired the bus with the money, the organizational know-how, the opportunity to take that initiative. See, we're not all entrusted with the same resources and responsibilities for God's kingdom because we've all got different abilities. We're all in different situations. And God takes all of that into account and it can change through, through our life. So he's entrusted it his servants with his wealth and his opportunities, his resources, but he does so according to our personalities, our histories, our, our uh, health, our marital family situation and so on. He gives them, gives us these opportunities. So tempting to look over the shoulder at other people and either resent what they've got to be the, the two-talent man thinking, it's not fair, why wasn't I given five? Um, or to be the five-talent one and go, well, aren't I marvellous? It's not, not valid either, is it, either? We mustn't do that. It's tempting to look and see what others have been given, but that's the wrong direction to look. As scene two demonstrates, look at scene two. Scene two, we can call this the, the servant's 
in action. So the master's now absent, and the servant with the five talents and the servant with the two seize the opportunity. Immediately they go out and um, they grow their master's fortune. They multiply it. But the servant with the one talent takes no such risks. He buries the money in the ground, which, I mean, I suppose, actually, incidentally, that was, the, that was recommended in those days as a way of keeping money safe and bury it. So the first two servants were not looking over their shoulders at one another. The five-talent servant was not feeling pleased with himself. And the two-talent servant was not grumbling that they had received less. They have exactly the same attitude. So interesting, isn't it? Exactly the same attitude. They're both determined to multiply God's kingdom. Now you might wonder and say, hang on, this is not really fair on the third servant. Because how are they supposed to know that the money was supposed to grow. How are they supposed to know that? Their master never gives them the instruction and tells them to do that. But we know Jesus' teaching. How often in Jesus' teaching is the idea that God's kingdom is a thing that grows? So important, the mustard seed. Remember, the yeast that works for the whole batch of dough. It's just built into the very nature of God's kingdom that it grows, grows, grows. That's how they were to know. So these first two people are, they're these kingdom can do, gospelpreneur people. And their question in every situation in life is, how can I make the best of this for Jesus? How can I use this situation? How can I use this opportunity for Jesus? I remember wearing a new pair of trousers to a staff meeting at our church I worked at years ago. A pair of cargo trousers, you know, with the pockets on the outside. And, um, the, um, and one of my colleagues was so excited at the trousers. And he was like, oh, I love your trousers. He goes, oh, oh thank you. Thank you, Paul. And he goes, yeah, look at that. Pockets on the outside to hold all your evangelistic booklets to give away. <laughs> it's like, man, this man even sees trousers as an opportunity for the gospel. But yes, that's it. That's the parable of the talents. Even my trousers were an opportunity. The servants of Jesus, um, that's the mindset. To use, uh, or, or to use the Christian word, I love this. You, you get it in lots of um, Victorian Christian literature. So, you know, we must improve our opportunities. I love that. We must improve our opportunities. But that's it. That's a great word. Improve our opportunities. So wherever we are, whatever, we, whatever opportunity we have, whatever place of work you have, whatever, where you live, whatever, thinking, what, how can I, I've been given this, how can I use this for the kingdom of God to make it grow? That's the mindset of the kingdom can do gospelpreneur. Now, hang on, what do we see over there? You see that bloke over there, look, there's a soil flying up into the sky. He's, look, he's, there's a guy there with his spade. Oh, that's different. He's burying the master's talent. That's odd. What's going on there? Well, scene three brings that to light. So scene one, the servants entrusted. Scene two, the servants in action. Scene three, the servants evaluated. So the master gets home to settle accounts with his servants, and he's delighted with the first two. They start with different amounts, but they use their money with the same attitude. They both get the same return, 100%. 
and they're both commended as good and faithful. It's interesting, isn't it? They, actually, the words are, ex- are identical that the master says to both. Identical words. So the point is not the, uh, the, the, not the sort of the total volume of what we have and have produced, but the proportion of where which we have used what we have been given, the opportunity that we've been given. So we're learning how to get ready for Jesus' return. Use what you have to do what you can to grow the kingdom of God. Um, I'm very struck by a famous quote from Lord Shaftesbury. You know up in at, um, the statue of Eros in um, Piccadilly Circus, there it's put up in memory of, he was known as the poor man's earl, um, Lord Shaftesbury, um, Ashley Cooper, 19th century um, uh, evangelical Christian um, politician and uh, aristocrat. He had tremendous opportunity in his life, enormous amounts of money. He didn't keep it, though. Um, enormous amounts of influence. Do you know what he used it for? To get the children out of the chimneys, to change the uh, working practices. Um, he was even involved in the protecting the animals, you know, the... Um, the RSPCA, he was there at the beginning of that. Enormous, enormous influence in the name of Jesus for the kingdom of God. And you would think, you would think, well, what was his secret? Let me tell you his secret. This is what these first two servants were like. He, this is a quote from, from um, Anthony Ashley Cooper, 7th Earl of Shaftesbury. He said, I do not think in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. He was so focused on the glories to come that he was of the most extraordinary use to the world (laughs) in which he lived. And that's what those first two servants were about. But this third servant, he does the exact opposite. As he now explains to his master, he says, I buried the money out of fear. So he saw his master as a hard-nosed predator, reaping where he didn't sow. And so he's afraid, he's afraid to lose the wealth of such a ruthless man and maybe he'd figured out also that if he did make any money there wouldn't be anything in it for him because a master like that would have been sure to take all the profit for himself why did he not work hard for his master the answer is i think it's because he neither trusted him nor loved him actually he fears him and he resents him And that is exactly what can hold us back as well, many of us back, in the service of God. We basically see ourselves under the jackboot of a hard divine taskmaster. Um, Does he love me? No, he just wants to lash me and make me work harder. And, uh, And then he's given me a hard lot anyway. It's easier for them over there. Why did they get that and I get this and and it... You see, a resentment creeps in against him that's actually paralyzing and prevents us from doing anything for God's kingdom. Matthew Henry, the great uh, 17th century Bible writer, he puts it like this. It's brilliant. He says, it's so clear. He says, good thoughts of God beget love. And love would make us hardworking and faithful. But, says Matthew Henry, hard thoughts of God beget fear and that fear makes us lazy and unfaithful so the one talent servant's explanation well it's really a toxic blend of insults and excuses and so the master judges him by his own words he says look if if 
you, resentful servant, really knew that if you really thought that's what I was like, that I would want more back than I started with, then why didn't you at least put the money somewhere where you could have got some interest on it? And then the third servant is condemned, um, and his one talent is taken from him and given to the one who has ten talents. Verse 29, Jesus says, To those who have will be given more, and they will have an abundance. But as for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And you think, oh, that doesn't sound very fair. Actually, it is. Think about it. The master is simply confirming the situation that the man had already brought on himself when he did nothing with the money. He did nothing with the master's money, so he can't be entrusted with any of it. Whereas the one who had shown himself faithful with even more of his master's wealth is given more. So that's a warning to us. This third servant is a warning to us who read this parable today. Um, There is a return of Jesus. He is coming. And we might appear to be a follower of his, but that day could reveal something different. Uh, By the way, it's not that our activity for the kingdom of God is the thing that saves us, but if there is no willingness to make the most of whatever opportunities God has given us for him, if there's not even a flicker of that kingdom of God can do mindset, then something's not quite right. And it may very well have to do with the way you or I see God. Do we see him as a good, generous, compassionate, powerful, enabling God who loves to make things grow because that's the truth or instead are we crippled by a vision of a hard-nosed, ruthless, tight-fisted heavenly tyrant. Getting ready for Jesus' return. That's what Advent's about. And we will get ourselves prepared as we learn from the first of those two servants, the ones who put the money to work. As we learn from people like George Verwer, or that woman, Dorothea Clapp, or that businessman who booked the bus, or Ashley Cooper, that politician who did so much good for Jesus. We'll learn from people like that how to be these opportunity-seizing, kingdom-can-do, gospel-preneurs. That's what we long, that's what I long to be while I'm on this world. And who knows for how long that will be for me or for any of us. It's privilege to be part of it. It's the most enormous privilege. And if you don't know what your opportunities are, what your responsibilities are, um, or in fact, your abilities, because they do matter, your abilities, not your abilities don't matter. Of course they do. Your abilities, if you don't know what they are, I don't know what really what, what I'm supposed to be doing for God, then ask, then ask God to show you. Say, Jesus, show me. Ask a trusted friend to show you. But for now, let's offer ourselves, in principle at least, as authentic servants of Jesus, willing to use whatever opportunity, resource, he has put into our hands to make his kingdom multiply as we pray. God, our Father, we thank you for Jesus' parable of the talents and for all that it 
teaches us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, give us uh, the desire to make the most of this life with all its opportunities and resources for you. Let's pray that you would do this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.